Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Barbara Thayer Bacon, University of Tennessee. Barb, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you. So, in order to get us started, uh, it's the case that we often ask our uh, uh, guests, what was the genesis of your work in this field? Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your entry into philosophy of education? Well, first thing you need to know is that I'm a philosopher at heart. Mm. So I was philosophizing as a kid and driving my family crazy, asking philosophical questions. Sure. when my I remember my mom saying to me, why don't you just worry about regular, normal things that kids worry about? Because I was worrying about the uh, environmental pollution and civil rights issues and the Vietnam War. And so I was reading Zen and Buddhism and uh, uh, Alan Watts' work and uh, I had uh, in high school. Okay. I was doing that. Not, not as part of any curriculum I had at school, but just on my own. So. Sure. I think I will always be a philosopher, that I, 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 even when I retire from working, I feel like I've had the amazing fortune of getting to do a job doing what I do anyway. Okay, uh, sure. So that's been really neat. How I got into it, from you know, my undergraduate degree then is in philosophy. Okay. I had followed my heart, and I just had no idea what I was going to do job-wise with that, but I just kept reading and taking courses that, in what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And I have really tried to encourage my own children to do that as well because I think you can, it's impossible to predict what the world's going to be like 20 years from now in terms of jobs, but if you can follow your heart, you'll figure out how to do something with that. Um, I have cartoons on my office door that my dad used to send me uh, that were philosophers that were unemployed and working as Santa helpers and sure. things like that. Wondering, what is she going to do with this degree? Sure. You know? sure. Sure. Um, and I, what, way, what got me into philosophy of education was that I got waylaid uh, from going on to graduate degree in philosophy by getting married and having children. Okay. And uh, my first child was born in Germany, and I that opened me up to looking at other possible ways of doing education. And once I discovered that there were other possibilities and then I just got excited about the possi- you know, the possibilities that might be available for her. And I started looking around and uh, I discovered A.S. Neal's Summer Hill and um, Maria Montessori yeah. and also um, other examples that were people were exploring and talking about at the time. And so... Uh, when I came back from Europe, I was in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, and there was a little Montessori school that was trying to get started. It was their first... I was one of the parents that came in and helped paint the the room and okay. helped create that space. Um, and then I wasn't real happy with how they were doing it. Uh, and so I volunteered to be the secretary and help them get more organized. Uh, and then uh, decided, you know, I would really love to help 
maybe I should just roll up my sleeves and help even more. So I went, uh, there, you know, I was in the first uh, U.S. Uh, Montessori training program for elementary teachers. You used to have to go to Europe and spend a year there to get elementary certification. And so that year they opened up a program in D.C. area. Okay. And I was in this amazing class with people who had owned their own schools and had been involved in Montessori for years, but had never had the opportunity to actually get the elementary training. And so it was really great, fun class. Two years, <laughs> uh, two summers, and an intern in between. And so I went, I went to, through that process so that I could be in the school with my kids okay. while they were, and, and my bargain was that um, my pay was like $5,000. But the tuition was free. Okay. okay so I, I got three kids through Montessori by me working in the Montessori school. Okay. And at that point, I was a single mom with these three kids. So, sure. So um, that was also a way that I could know that my hours were going to work in, in relation to theirs. Children, yeah. So, yeah, so my kids are the reason why I got into the education side of it yeah. and they're all of them are named in my dissertation because they said okay I want full credit for getting sure. you into education because as an undergrad I was avoiding education oh, I didn't take a single course in education uh, only jobs I knew women had were in nursing and teaching sure. so I wasn't going to do that Interesting. Uh, so I was definitely influenced by feminist uh, work and ideas that were going on at the time and then once I discovered how <coughs> exciting it was to imagine the possibilities of how you could do things differently, then I was hooked. Mm. And I love working with kids. So uh, I only left working in a Montessori school because I was poverty stricken. And it was going to limit my own children's choices for what they wanted to do with their lives. And as my father pointed out to me, What's the highest paid Montessori teacher you know? Sure. And then he said, well, my gardener makes more than that, oh, Barb. No. Oh, so no. Oh, no. you might want to think about that. And so, you know, that was, that was what pushed me to go back to graduate school. And, and, and so at first I went back for a public school teaching credential. Okay. And then I went for a master's in curriculum and instruction. Both of those I got through San Diego State while teaching full-time as a Montessori teacher as a single mom with three kids. Wow. And then, I, and then I discovered, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as philosophy of education. Yeah. So when I discovered that, I was really excited to realize, oh, I could actually get a PhD and this would make like a circle that made full sense for me. So I've been really fortunate because the only two jobs I've had in higher ed they actually advertise for a philosopher of wow. education. Which is difficult to come by. Now, yeah. as, you're, as you're sort yeah. of laying out the story here, there are a couple of things that strike me. I mean, so uh, there's the personal element to your story thus yeah. far, right? I mean, so... It's you, a woman's story. Yeah, so, and you identified, right? You mm -hmm. said that uh, for you, you were, you were always a philosopher, right? Philosophy was the sort of thing that you did, and you kind of yeah. then found the discipline and sort of thought, oh, this is what I've been doing. And that... that yeah. uh, 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 is very familiar to me. Um, but then you also talk about the way in which your personal circumstances, family, uh, uh, you know, the relationships that you had with your, with your children, led you into thinking about education in a way that, um, again, right, very personal, very immediate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, this distant sort of uh, no. academic, in the derogative sense, academic uh, 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 engagement. It was a, a, 
embodied uh, 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 yeah, concern okay. with education. Yeah. Now, you, you made mention of a couple of uh, a couple of folks. You, you mentioned uh, uh, sort of A.S. Niels, uh, Summerhill. You, you talked about uh, Maria Montessori. Uh, can you say a little bit more about um, about Montessori? Uh, you're one of the, the few folks in the field of philosophy of education who uh, has really uh, uh, written explicitly uh, on Montessori. Uh, can you say a little bit about what sort of work you've been doing or have done in the past on, on Montessori? Well, you should know, too, that she still feeds my uh, thinking. I, yeah. I still am u- still using that experience to help me in my own work. Um, yeah. I think the thing that um, when you read Montessori, it's uh, she writes a very sort of flowery, uh, and she's got these deep Roman Catholic roots to sure. her and Italian roots to her. It's not the writing of Montessori that uh, inspired me as much as um, the working in a Montessori school environment. The structure that she created with multi-ages together and those kids staying in that space over extended three-year period of time and watching children go from being like the youngest in a class Mm -hmm. to the middle, like a middle child to the eldest and allowing the children to choose their own work uh, all day long, and to guard that time and, allow, and not interrupt their their um, their own concentration and their own development, but let them be the guide. I learned to trust children's desire to learn through that experience, and I learned that everything that was going on in that classroom space was very valuable and important to them. You know, I found myself worrying about whether they were on task and if they were accomplishing what they should be and if they were just wandering around and looked like they weren't doing anything because I because I had the experience of having five-year-olds that had were doing all these different things coming into my classroom space and finding that within two months they were all reading Uh, even the kid that spent all his time wandering around and didn't seem to be engaged in any work over in the preschool was absorbing stuff. And my kid was over there at the workbench making uh, airplanes and stuff. And they all were, uh, it was amazing to see that process. And the other thing that I, uh, that I learned from being in there was that, that the, um, that if you let children be the guide and, and, and pay attention, she, so she taught me how to observe kids and to notice what they were interested in and what they were drawn to and what they were avoiding and and to notice through their writing what maybe things were that they needed help with but not to correct their writing but to bring out those works and materials to help enhance what they learned and i i had multi uh I had kids with all sorts of special needs in my class. Uh, this was an inclusive class. So, but I watched a, a little girl that was in my class with Down syndrome for three or four years reading at grade level, sure. not getting math too well, but sure. loving to play with the materials and all sorts of other things that just made me realize this is a space where children can get up and move around. Mm. Nobody's asking them to sit in a desk for crazy five hours or... Mm. Um, this is a space where children can decide to work alone or with others. And, um, and, and when in the rest of our lives are we ever just isolated with just only six-year-olds, only people sure. our age together? Sure. When, as adults, don't we get to choose, um, well, I, I'm really good at learning new things in the evening or early in the morning. or They got to choose if they wanted to do math all day on Monday and then not do it the rest of the week. 
they could do that as long as so I, it just really taught me to trust children's desire to learn in ways to the ways that we harm that process and keep them from being able to do that and I still do that with uh, those basic ideas I still do with with my graduate students I Interesting. and in our own development of our programs I still find myself in conversations with my colleagues who want to tie down all the course requirements sure. and because they know that will make sure their course makes sure. but I'm always arguing for the side of you got to let ch- people choose their what they want to take and trust that they're you know at this point they know, they know what their interests are sure. and how painful is it to ask them to do a doctorate degree where they don't get to choose sure. what they want to do. Sure. I, um, so I th- she still feeds my thinking about it and, and how to create a classroom spaces that are like a, uh, that help children practice the skills they need to be engaged citizens in a democratic society, which I don't think in our school spaces the way we've designed them do that. She's also really helped me think about how individuals relate to each other in a more uh, in a more community you know community of inquirers. Um, she's helped me think about how children have um, all sorts of different abilities uh, and and yet they um, how they can pull from maybe a more aesthetic kind of approach or more. I started, my dissertation was on critical thinking because I thought the children in my class were maybe learning to be good critical thinkers because they were, they, I had to give them an Iowa basic test uh, and when I was in California, the California achievement test and they were all scoring like three grade levels above the norm. And I knew the curriculum didn't match the public school curriculum. Sure. So I thought, okay, what's going on here? Why are they all doing, doing so, so well? well. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I knew they were diverse in their ability levels. Sure. You know, so, uh, but they all got to work at their own pace. They weren't being measured against other people their own age. There was no grading going on in the class. It was just, I've, you've been shown the work, you're working on the work, you've mastered the work. Sure. And then you move on. And so er- everybody was just measuring against themselves. How am I doing? And er- the materials were very sequential. So you just keep working on the, in the sequential pattern that you're, you're in. Um, and if there's a couple others working on that material at the same time, you can work with each other, or, or maybe you're working on something that others haven't been shown yet, so you go off and work on that on your own. So that was wonderful to see that there was this diverse, I knew there was tremendous diversity in terms of what they were working on, and yet they all did so well sure. on the test. So I thought, okay, maybe they're just learning to be good critical thinkers sure okay and and then after I that was my dissertation and then I thought well but wait a minute there's all this stuff going on in that room that wouldn't be related to critical thinking as we define it and that pushed me to think about redefining critical thinking and in a in a way that allowed for intuition and imagination and emotions and all this sort of communication skills that they were learning and I, I ended up developing a metaphor of contrasting Rodin's thinker to a quilting bee because my classroom felt like more like this quilting bee okay. where there was times where you could go off and work by yourself and develop your own square sure. and then you came back and, uh, and attached it to the, the quilt and, and brought it into the larger project yeah. with others and so forth yeah. and rather than solitary uh, yeah so they got to see themselves as, lear- as uh, I felt like I was teaching them research skills 
And they were then coming back and teaching us what they were learning through their research that they were doing. So we were all teaching each other, which was really a neat thing for me to also realize that I didn't have a desk. I had a clipboard. Sure. And an adult plastic chair that I could move around. But sure. I was often on the floor uh, sitting next to a child and uh, on a, with their, they were working on a material on the mat and stuff. So I still do that. I still try to create a classroom space where we all get to know each other and we all see each other as sources of knowledge. And we yeah. all learn things from each other. And in the curriculum is loose too. And I still do a mastery learning approach where pa- students can work on their papers until they are satisfied with sure. it. Sure. So if it means rewriting, that's rewriting. Nobody gets docked. Sure. I hate grading. Sure. So I give as much feedback as I can. And grades are always in pencil for me until the sure. end. And I tell students that if you run out of time, life happens while we're in school. Of course. So then tell me, and I will give you an incomplete, because I want you to be able to do this until you feel like you've had the chance to master it. Sure. And why would I assume you know how to write a philosophical paper if you haven't ever had a course course, or a chance to learn that? So, So that's what I do. I have probably had on one hand the number of students who have any kind of a strong background in philosophy when they come into my courses, yeah. but they all know how to think, sure. and cr- not just critically, but imaginatively sure. and intuitively, sure. and so I work on that and try to open up those spaces as much as I can. And well, that, I mean, that really sounds interesting. It's, it's fascinating that uh, you're able to connect uh, your earlier experiences uh, uh, in the Montessori school then with your uh, sort of academic work, right? Sort of uh, first, yeah. again, uh, thinking about this, this sort of personal uh, thread throughout your work, right? Having the personal experience in the Montessori school, letting that then inform the uh, academic work that you did, but then also letting that inform the work that you did, uh, that you're doing uh, 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 in the institution of the university, uh, drawing upon these Montessori uh, ideas, principles, and values. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a couple of uh, concepts that seem to me to be related, perhaps. Um, this spirit of cooperation that seems rather important, uh, alongside uh, uh, trust in the uh, the child or the person, uh, and uh, sort of observing them in order to communicate with them while trusting them, uh, seems rather important to the, the, the sort of the structure that you're you're outlining here. Uh, when, when you talk and valuing diverse diverse yeah. approaches to learning yeah. and diverse interests and yeah. and trying yeah. to encourage that. Yeah, and recognizing that these uh, uh, individuals are not individuals uh, sort of uh, full stop, but that they're members of a group, of a community, yeah. and that community uh, really deserves uh, our attention as well. Yeah. Um, speaking about community... Uh, what do you see as being uh, sort of the future of, of our community here and uh, uh, folks who do work in philosophy of education? You, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, the way in which you've redefined uh, in your earlier work, redefined uh, critical thinking and sort of thought about uh, the uh, civic and uh, democratic uh, uh, possibilities um, for uh, this, this, this approach. But what do you see as being on the horizon for the sort of work that folks are doing in uh, philosophy of education? What should we be looking at? Well, one well? way that my students are uh, are trying to figure out, I mean, they're trying to negotiate this space, too, and figure yeah. out where, the, where are their job possibilities and what can they look at. Some of them are going in, like, policy directions yeah. and looking at how they can work pot- potentially 
in helping develop educational policy issue, uh, issues and how people consider the pros and cons to the different policies they're thinking about. Sure. Some of them are going off in directions of working and I teach a social justice course and I teach and they have and we do in the issues in cultural studies course and we do service learning but critical service learning so some of them are getting involved in NGOs and nonprofits and helping them figure out how to um, to get grant money and helping them in terms of research issues and uh, my program that I'm in was formed at Highlander. So that in Tennessee, I learned that there's a whole lot of people that don't have a clue what Highlander is. Or, so that's become a social part of my, my work is making sure everybody graduates for, with, from courses with me, knowing about that, sure. knowing about uh, Paolo Ferrari's work and Miles Horton's work sure. and how, the, how, how this is a political project as well. Uh, and that power issues are always involved. And so my own philosophical work is political philosophical kind of work and it's partly been because I've had to try to make the case that there are multiple ways of doing philosophy sure. and what by what criteria and standards are you just judging whether I get accepted into a conference sure. or into uh, you know publications and so it's forced me to look at epistemological issues okay. and also to figure out how to justify that my work is um, is philosophical work because sure. I have a strong commitment to making it accessible and uh, approachable and welcoming philosophical questions by everyone in my classroom space. Sure. Yeah. So then I try to write in that way too. I try to write as a conversation that is so en encouraging other people, which means from, from the my students' perspective, I'm still translating ideas and trying to help them understand them and to make them more approachable. But from my philosophical colleagues' perspective, it's, it's also trying to help them understand, no, these, these are deep philosophical thoughts that are sure. going on here. Sure. Just in, I'm trying to make it accessible and, uh, to others and beyond. So I, you know, I use Bell Hooks, for example, in my class, and I love the way she made that really conscious decision to not cite sources sure. 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 And, and, she, and to make her work accessible to, to uh, the African-American community as sure. well. And that was a big decision on her part because her own colleagues then didn't view the work necessarily as scholarly. Sure, rigorous. I'm in the same yeah. boat yeah. with her, and I use her work in my classes, and we talk about those issues and how you're going to write and how you're going to present yourself. And as a feminist scholar, the issue of you know pushing myself to have a voice and to it's scary to put it out there in print, but. Sure. But it's through writing that I, I think about the ideas as well. So I, I trying to encourage them as well to see themselves in those ways. And yeah. I mean, it sounds as though there are a couple of... Uh, you offered for us uh, a couple of uh, very uh, uh, helpful ways forward, right? Thinking about, uh, again, uh, uh, ourselves uh, as embodied persons uh, pursuing these questions, pursuing these questions in a community of others, uh, and recognizing the diversity of perspectives, perhaps, uh, that we might use uh, to pr in pursuit of these questions. Yeah. Uh, Barb, thank you so much for sitting with us and chatting. It's really been a treat. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm.
A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.